This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll get a report on one of Donald Trump's shithole countries, Haiti. Amy Willens, a legendary writer about Haiti, has just returned from a visit. Also, we'll talk about the drone wars and their victims, not just among the targets of the drone attacks, but among the drone warriors themselves. AL Press has a surprising report and a powerful one. But first, migrant children separated from their parents by the Border Patrol under Trump's new policy. What's happening to them now? The Trump administration says they're being reunited with their parents. Is that really happening? How is that working? For a report, we turn to Zoe Carpenter. Recently, she went inside a Border Patrol's processing facility in McAllen, Texas, where immigrants are taken after being apprehended and where children were being held separately from their parents. Zoe is the nation's associate Washington editor. She worked previously for Rolling Stone. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and other networks. We reached her today in Washington. Zoe Carpenter, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Well, we want to hear about what you saw inside that Border Patrol detention center in McAllen, Texas. But first, we need to talk about the latest news on families apprehended by the Border Patrol. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. This story is changing every few hours. But right now, we're still dealing with Trump's tweet on Sunday on the way to his golf course in Virginia. Quote, we cannot allow all of these people to invade our country. When somebody comes in, we must immediately, with no judges or court cases, bring them back from where they came, close quote. No judges or court cases, that's the opposite of zero tolerance. So can you make any sense of this policy? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if I can make sense of it, but certainly it's it's a troubling suggestion. There are already significant concerns with due process for people seeking asylum and people in immigration detention centers more generally, especially children have struggled to access lawyers. 
because there's no right to an attorney for undocumented children who cross the border on their own. So the idea that we would make the situation have even less protections for due process is quite concerning. Zero tolerance, of course, is the idea that everyone crossing the border will be prosecuted with a crime. So I guess it's the opposite uh, in the sense that there would be no prosecutions at all, that everyone would get deported. Obviously, that's their you know, extreme human rights concerns with doing that, considering that people are, are fleeing very real violence in many of the countries in Central America that they're coming from. There's at least two different kinds of people who cross the border, at least from the viewpoint of American law. Those who present themselves seeking asylum are entitled to a hearing to decide whether they have what's called a credible fear of persecution back home. And if so, they are placed in the immigration court system and they are given a full hearing. That process can take many months of waiting. Then there's the people who are just caught crossing the border who aren't applying for asylum. That's a completely separate case. The reason we have an asylum program goes back to right after World War II when Americans came to regret sending refugees back to Nazi Germany to their deaths. We're told now that Trump has been blocking people from crossing the border at points of entry so that they can't even request asylum. In the past, my understanding is those who are caught crossing illegally who didn't request asylum got a quick hearing before a judge on a misdemeanor charge of border crossing, were then sentenced to time served and sent back. The problem is some children arrive unaccompanied, some children arrive with their parents. There's also a court decision that says children can be detained for only 20 days. What do we know now about the children who've been uh, apprehended under uh, Trump's policy? What happens to the 20-day limit now? Well, the 20-day limit is still in effect, but I, I believe, and this is, this is very complicated, but the 20-day limit doesn't apply to shelters because shelters aren't considered the same as a detention facility. The shelters have to abide by certain minimum standards of care. They have to offer education and many more services than a detention center would. So, you know, if you keep families in family detention centers, then you're dealing with this 20-day limit for kids. But if the kids are in a shelter, then it's a slightly different situation. So, you know, we have presumably still uh, a couple of thousands, over 2,000 children who are in these shelters that since they've been removed from their parents. And now they have separate legal cases And so they'll have to find lawyers on their own, uh, presumably pro bono lawyers or whatever sponsors they eventually get released to will have to find lawyers for them. We already know that there's a shortage of lawyers to represent unaccompanied children. So if these children have asylum cases, it's going to be very difficult for them to bring them successfully. Even if they do find lawyers, if they're separated from their parents, if they can't contact their parents, they might be lacking crucial information to support those claims. So it's just uh, a giant mess. And another part of the giant mess is we've we've learned or we've seen reports that detained migrants have adults, parents have been told they could get their kids back if they agreed to be deported without a hearing. This was reported first in the Texas Tribune family reunification was offered in exchange for what the government calls voluntary deportation. What do we know about that? Well, this is another signal that the administration is trying to discourage people from bringing asylum claims forward or or trying to 
pursue their case to stay in the U.S. via other routes through immigration law. And (laughs) this appears to be an intimidation tactic that's being used, as you said, against parents, really holding their children hostage and encouraging them to sign these voluntary deportation orders in exchange for giving their kids back. And that's a pretty sick way to go about discouraging people from applying for asylum. And then, of course, we have shifts in what's considered eligible in terms of a claim for asylum. So Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, recently changed the policy so that domestic violence, uh, for instance, is no longer a category that people can can claim asylum under. Another issue, the on Tuesday, it was reported that the Border Patrol has stopped handing parents over to the Justice Department for prosecution when they're caught crossing the border illegally with their children. This is because, we are told, right now they have no place to put them. The detention centers are full. The largest processing center for immigrants, at least according to the L.A. Times, is in McAllen, Texas. You visited that detention center. You got inside that detention center. Tell us what you saw there. I was there um, about 10 days ago, and I was part of a press tour. So we had fairly restricted access. We were being given the tour by Border Patrol agents, and we had about 25 minutes inside the facility. I'd say maybe a little less, and we weren't allowed allowed to interview any of the people there. But you did get to see the conditions, and and. Essentially, it's a very large facility, 77,000 square feet, and it's uh, divided mostly by these chain-link pens uh, where people are separated based upon age and family status. So there's an area with women and their children and with men and their children and men and women alone, and then there's also an area for unaccompanied children or children who've been separated from their parents. And this facility is the initial processing facility that people go to after they've been apprehended by the Border Patrol. And um, at least at the time that I was there, it was really the epicenter of the family separations because they were in many cases taking place within that facility. And so some of the children who were being held in these large pens or, or cages presumably had been separated from their parents there. Although we, since we weren't allowed to talk to them, it was difficult to tell who had been actually separated and who had crossed the border on their own. And what do they call this place? The the nickname that this facility has has earned uh, is the dog kennel. And that's a loaded description, obviously, but um, it it did seem accurate when I was in there because of the way that these pens have been set up. It it feels like a a sort of run that you might keep a dog in. But of course, they're, they're very crowded when I was there, there were over 1,100 people at the facility. It wasn't quite at capacity, but Border Patrol agents who were showing us around did talk about the strain um, that the extra prosecutions had placed on the entire system. They had computers set up for people to do virtual processing with Border Patrol agents who were in other cities because they simply didn't have enough um, manpower at the processing facility in Gallon to, to go through all the paperwork. So migrants with children are, quote, processed. Last week, they were separated from their children. Now they're no longer being separated. But the ones who were separated, many of the children then were sent out of the detention facility, and they've been sent to shelters all over the country. We've seen reports from New York, from Los Angeles, from Seattle, Washington, 
the issue is how are those kids going to be reunited with their parents? The parents are told there's a hotline number they can call. What do we know about the hotline and what do we know about this reunification process at this point? Some parents have reported that the hotline number is essentially a black hole. They call it and they get put on hold indefinitely or they can't get through to someone at all. Of course, remember that these are parents who in most cases are in detention. So they have a limited time to use the phone. They may not have money to make calls. So the hotline has been of limited use to many people. Um, In terms of the the broader question about reunification, the government says that it's created a process. And of course, the the big question is, well, why didn't they create this process before uh, there was a crisis? They say that about 500 kids have been reunited, but I don't think that's been independently verified. Um, And that still leaves over 2,000 children in HHS-funded facilities. In terms of how the reunification process will work, uh, we know that children have to stay in custody as long as their parents' deportation proceedings are ongoing, um, unless they can find another relative or someone else to sponsor them outside of their facility. Uh, So we may see children in these uh, facilities, these shelters, for a long time. It's not clear how long it'll take for their parents to go through the legal process. And we've also seen reports of parents deported without their children. Their children stay in the United States. And we have seen a few reports of children who are deported and who don't know where their parents are. And we should keep in mind that these children um, are being deported or may be deported to uh, countries where they may face very real threats in, in terms of violence. And transparency remains a big problem. We still don't know where many of the shelters that are housing the children are. And members of Congress and members of the press still don't have access inside them. And, you know, we know from past experience that there are legitimate concerns with treatment of children in detention facilities, in shelters. And so that will be a, a big thing to look at going forward since many of these children who have yet to be reunited with their parents may remain in these shelters for weeks, if not months to come. Well, in conclusion, let's not forget what the Trump administration did It forcibly separated migrant children from their parents crossing the border. This included infants, little kids in diapers, detained them in a tent city and in a repurposed Walmart in South Texas. It penned children in large metal cages. Some were sent thousands of miles away. That's what Trump wanted to do. That's what Trump did for a while. But so many people were horrified and outraged that Trump had to reverse course. So let's not forget what Trump did, and let's not forget what stopped him. You can read Zoe Carpenter's reporting at thenation.com. Zoe, thanks for all your work on this, and thanks for talking with us today. Nice talking with you, Jim. Now it's time to talk about drone warriors. Drones have become the centerpiece of the American War on Terror. The drone program is run by the CIA and the military and surrounded by secrecy. But we think American drones have been used to carry out airstrikes in at least eight different countries and have killed perhaps 10,000 people including perhaps a 1,000 civilians in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Somalia. 
AL Press has been reporting on the drone war and the people who fight it. He wrote about it for the New York Times Magazine. He also writes for the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, and The Nation, and he's a fellow at the Nation Institute. He's the author of two books, including Beautiful Souls. It's about how to understand individual acts of courage and conscience in dangerous circumstances. A.L. Press, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. Well, your focus has been on the drone warriors, the people who sit at computer screens whose clicks send fire and fury to other people who are supposed to be the terrorists, who are our enemies. We're told that drones have turned warfare into a bloodless exercise for Americans so that we can kill our enemies without sending our own men and women onto the battlefield. Drone warfare is described as something like a video game, except that the drone warriors really kill real people, of course, without any danger to themselves, and that makes drone warfare win-win, we are told. You have a different focus, the drone warriors themselves. Recently, you wrote about one named Christopher Aaron, Tell us about him. How did he get into this? What's the work like? Sure. Um, my article focuses on the psychic and moral implications for people in the drone program who are doing this work, doing this form of warfare. But part of what the article covers and goes into is that the, the very uncertainty of who is being killed and, and the, um, the fact that lives are being taken uh, that this is leaving a a, uh, a residue, an emotional residue, a moral residue, and it's having an impact on the people in the drone program. Uh, and and of course, that program, as you said, is is very hidden. It's very uh, swathed in secrecy, and so we we don't often hear directly from the people in the program. Uh, I happen to profile and, and write about Chris Aaron, who was in the drone program pretty much at the beginning, uh, kind of got involved through an intelligence agency and, and joined a task force on drones. Um, and he entered the program very idealistic, um, very much, um, and he, he was quite conservative at the time, um, very much believing that 9-11 was the uh, defining challenge for his generation. His grandfather had served in Europe during World War II. He really emulated his grandfather. And Chris went into the program um, with that kind of mindset that he was going to help America defeat al-Qaeda. Uh, both his beliefs about the war on terror and his experience in the drone program um, changed profoundly. And um, by the end of his uh, time in service, he actually had to, he was on the verge of taking a job with a uh, private contractor uh, that was involved in the drone program, and he sort of had a breakdown. He had a physical breakdown um, first, and then after the physical breakdown, he started experiencing nightmares in which he was seeing violence unfold and um, a real kind of long period of darkness and depression that took him years to get through, and that is I think very related to the questions he started asking about who uh, were the victims of the drone program and, and what was the point of it and, and what um, did he accomplish actually. And would you say that Chris Aaron had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? 
That's a really good question because PTSD within the military uh, is generally associated with exposure to what are called life threat events. So if you think of Iraq and Afghanistan, it's, you know, the soldier in the battalion that hits a bump on the road and it's an IED and it it explodes and and the soldier is injured or sees a um, pack by the enemy that causes fear. And that fear later resurfaces and kind of reliving that terrifying event. Drone operators, drone analysts don't go through that. They are away from the battlefield. They don't uh, experience these life threat events. So why the high rates of burnout and stress and distress? What is behind that? And in the piece, I talk about a different term that has gained currency since uh, really since the invasion of Iraq in particular. Uh, And that term is moral injury. And moral injury is a term, it was first used by Jonathan Shea, a psychiatrist and the author of the book Achilles in Vietnam. And he talked about the moral dimensions of combat trauma in that book and argued that, um, that many Vietnam veterans uh, felt and experienced a betrayal of what's right. That's the language he used. Um, and that this caused a moral injury. And, and this is really the key distinction, one of the key distinctions between moral injury and PTSD. It's what, is the, what are the emotions that go with it? With PTSD, there, there is fear, there is anger. With uh, moral injury, there is guilt and shame, uh, kind of feelings of, of self-condemnation and lack of self-worth. And moral injury is, in a way, uh, a term that has arisen to kind of bring back the moral questions that um, that I think we've suppressed as a society, that we don't really want to deal with. I think we're, we're much more comfortable as a society talking about uh, soldiers who were injured or wounded by acts the enemy committed while they were in combat, rather than by the things and I'm not, I would say the things they did, but really the things they did in our name. Christopher Aaron and, and other people in the drone program are engaging in a form of combat and killing, uh, in a form of, of warfare and killing uh, that society has chosen because we think it's costless to us. And um, it's not costless. Uh, it's certainly not costless to people living under drones. Um, I think we, we know that from the reports of, of non-governmental organizations and human rights groups. Uh, it's not costless in terms of what is being done to the rule of law and the questions of uh, how countries carry out assassinations outside of declared combat zones. But it's also not costless to the people doing the fighting. Killing people on video screens is so much more distant and abstract than killing them in person, face-to-face, isn't it? That's what everybody thought when, when the drone program began. But what, what, what we're finding is that um, this is actually a not what's happening. The, that, that, um, there's an Air Force study I cite, for example, where three-fourths of the people surveyed who were involved in kill chain operations say they experienced negative disruptive emotions. A large number of those said those emotions were lasting and unresolved. Why is that disturbing if it's just on a screen? One factor in that is, is simply the amount of exposure, the just 
day after day, shift after shift. You know, drone operators don't go into the combat zone for two months and then leave. Uh, this is their day job or sometimes their night job, uh, and they're working it over and over again. So they're seeing, uh, as one uh, operator I, analyst I interviewed uh, said, I'm seeing more, you're seeing more death than life uh, just on a daily basis. You know, the, the other thing we're learning is that um, these screens, in a sense, can create um, an intimacy because drone operators are seeing the people being surveyed and followed go about their daily lives. So they see them interact with family members. Uh, they see them interact with civilians. Uh, often the camera continues hovering after the strike. So you see survivors going uh, to the scene. And all of that creates uh, much more of a disturbing effect than, than what people had predicted beforehand. You attended a ceremony at the VA Medical Center in Philadelphia where a guy named Andy spoke before a small audience. Tell us about what happened there. Yeah, well, I was, you know, I was, I went to that ceremony because um, moral injury is implicitly, it is as much about um, kind of societal denial and disengagement as it is about what, uh, what veterans have done. And so this ceremony um, is designed to bring civilians together with veterans to to talk about moral injury and to to in a sense um, reckon with the costs of war. And at this ceremony, uh, a number of veterans spoke, and Andy had um, uh, came to the stage and talked about how um, he had served in Iraq and on a mission one night he called in an airstrike. And he assumed that uh, that because gunfire had come from a window, he assumed that that in that house uh, was the enemy. Um, and as he said at the ceremony, what he saw instead uh, were the bodies of um, 36 civilians, 19 men and, and, and eight women and nine children. He described all of this in, in an incredibly um, moving uh, and, and heartbreaking speech. And... Um, and after Andy spoke, um, he sort of went back to his chair, um, sobbing. Well, I was expecting at that point that that the minister uh, overseeing the ceremony would say, uh, "Thank you very much. You're all you can all go home now." And instead, he called members of the audience to the stage uh, to form a circle around Andy and the other veterans, and to link arms. He sort of led the, the audience members in um, reciting a message, the gist of which was, we sent you to do this. We put you into this situation uh, where these atrocities, um, where these deaths could happen, and therefore we share responsibility uh, with you for this. And I think that that, it was such a powerful thing to see because we have such a fake and I think in, grossly inadequate uh, way of, of reckoning with the costs of war in the society, which is to, to tell veterans, you know, thank you for your service and, and now go off to a VA uh, center and get, your, get the treatment you need. And, and please don't tell us anymore. You know, don't, we, we really don't want to hear from them. We don't want to hear about what they saw, what they did, um, what we should think about having sent them to do. And this ceremony was really designed 
to do the opposite, to, to, to inform society, you're involved. All of us are involved. So that was the ceremony I witnessed. Um, and uh, it was really one of the more powerful scenes I've ever, I've ever reported on. We share responsibility. AL Press wrote about the wounds of the drone warrior for the New York Times Magazine. AL, thank you for your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having us on. Now it's time for today's shithole country. That's a special feature of our program, reporting on the places and the immigrants Donald Trump doesn't like. Today's shithole country, Haiti. Amy Willens has just returned from Haiti with a report. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her award-winning recent book about Haiti, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, first of all, remind us why we care about Haiti. It's not just because it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Leftists have cared about Haiti for more than 200 years because of its history. Haiti has a very special and uh, heroic history, which is that in 1791, uh, the slave population of Haiti launched a revolution against Napoleon Bonaparte and the French Imperium and the the slaveholders of Haiti, and eventually the slave revolt was victorious and Haiti became an independent nation before any other of the Caribbean or Latin American nations did in 1804. The first and only successful slave revolution. And then what happened? Why is Haiti so poor? Well, then after that, of course, As you can imagine, the United States was kind of horrified because we still were a slave economy. Uh, France was horrified because it had been defeated. And what happened was two things that I think are important to America. One was Napoleon was so disgusted with the Americas and his defeat there and so encumbered by his adventures in Europe that he gave up on Louisiana. And he sold Louisiana territories to the Americans. So effectively, the Haitian slaves won for the United States its transcontinental geography. So that's blow one for the shithole nation. (laughs) And then, of course, France, horrified at this, did not want really these former slaves of theirs to become a fully recognized nation. And they demanded effectively reparations from the victor. So I think it's the first time, perhaps the only time in history in which someone won a war and then was was held up, really highway robbery, to pay back the people they had defeated. And France simply said, you owe us such and such an amount of money and we will not really recognize you, trade with you, permit you to gain full status as a nation until you pay us back not just for the plantations destroyed and fields burned, but for your own personal bodies, which we used to own. I mean, they didn't say it in such terms, but that was included as part of the property. And the Haitians had to pay them back. And that took a long time, by the way. It wasn't paid back until, I believe, the early 1960s, fully paid back. Well, you were in Haiti last week. We're still thinking about the earthquake, 7.0 earthquake, struck Haiti in January 2010, killed more than 200,000 people. 
the United States and other countries have provided more than, I think the number is $13 billion to repair the damage from the earthquake. What did you, what have you seen of the recovery for the $13 well, billion? Of course, have provided is the wrong verb to use. It was promised to Haiti. In a moment of friendly outpouring of ideas of money numbers that we could give them, it came to about $13 billion from all the friends of Haiti, from charities, etc. But very little of that actually went to the Haitian government. There's um, a longstanding suspicion, not entirely unjustified, that the Haitian government might not be the least corrupt of governments and perhaps you shouldn't pour money into the Haitian government. But a lot of those monies went to American, French, and Canadian firms who were doing relief and recovery. The relief effort was a good charitable attempt. Reconstruction, I would say, has not proceeded apace. And I think that uh, of those 13 billion, very few billion, if even a billion, were spent in Haiti on reconstruction and development. And a lot of the money was lost to corruption among non-governmental organizations, the Haitian government, wherever it could be lost and taken, it was lost and taken. And there was some trickle down. There is some housing. There are some new cities where people who lost their houses in the earthquake can live if you would want to live there. The American ambassador talked about the great natural beauty of Haiti. Lots of people do. How is the great natural beauty looking these days? It's looking very not good. And the reason why it's looking so bad is uh, pollution. Now, someone is freely and happily importing uh, polystyrene and uh, plastic bags and all sorts of things that are not being recycled. And so there are in place of ravines that used to have creeks in them that I even remember, although those were used as garbage deposits, it was organic garbage. So it would go away in a rainstorm. It would disappear. Now it just floats down the hill and masses at the mouth of the thing. And they're like giant mountains of bottles, et cetera. And there has been um, sort of sporadic pickup of recyclables. So like I imagine it must be every year or so someone comes along and picks up one pile mm. because I saw many, many piles, but there are piles. So people are thinking this ought to be recycled, but because there is no state in Haiti, there is no recycling. And if you want to see a country that's what Trump fantasizes the United States could somehow be one day if he works really hard. It's Haiti. There's no regulation. The government is very, very small the way the Republicans like to envision government. The government represents the moneyed class and no one else. And, uh, and Haiti is what you get. And what's the food situation right now? It's really sad. Haiti used to be a great agricultural country. It had coffee, which was is the fantasy product of a former slave community because you can cultivate coffee with a very small number of people. You don't need a plantation. You can do it in your backyard on a hill. And yet it was very valuable. 
But the coffee industry has totally fallen apart through world competition, global economics. So that no longer really exists. The rice economy was undermined when President Clinton unwisely decided to dump subsidized American rice into the Haitian market to help the hungry, but also destroy the Haitian cultivation of rice. So Haiti is now a net importer of food. That is crazy. And it imports a lot of its food from the more successful Dominican Republic next door. One of the biggest initiatives after the earthquake was to build new factory towns set up outside of the earthquake areas, these new industrial zones. How's this working out? It's still there. One of the big problems is that, well, of course, these things didn't benefit the victims of the earthquake, but in the long range thinking of the Americans and the UN and other friends of Haiti, so-called, they seem like a long-term plan, garment industry, which everyone knows, by the way, is no way to lift a people out of poverty. It keeps generation after generation in poverty, a lot like slavery. But so one of the things that's happening right now and has been happening for a while in Haiti is a push to change the minimum wage. From, I think, the top minimum wage, Haiti has tiered minimum wages, but the top minimum wage is like $4.50 a day. A day. A day. Um, And so they would like to raise that. And while I was there, there were all sorts of even larger traffic jams and and craziness on the streets of Port-au-Prince because there were a lot of demonstrations in favor of raising the minimum wage and against the, you know, what we would have called in the old days, the bosses who don't want to raise the minimum wage. Some of them got a little bit uh, angry, you know, tire burnings and and things like this. But So does this mean there are labor unions in Haiti? There are some labor unions in Haiti. Um, they're not very powerful. I remember when I went up to the new um, sort of free zone, I guess you would call it, the industrial park up in the north after the earthquake, the uh, South Korean owners of the main anchor garment factory there were very eager to introduce me to the head of the labor union. And immediately I thought, okay, if they're so eager to introduce me, what kind of labor union? And, and it was what we call in French minable, which means like pathetic, sweet, but pathetic. And finally, tell us about the cooperative library project Ah. in Cité Soleil. This is my favorite thing. It's run by, uh, a guy, his name is Luino Robillard, Roby, he's called. And he is, he was kind of a uh, gang member in Cité Soleil when Cité Soleil was really bad, but he was like a reluctant gang member. Um, and he's written a fabulous memoir of it, still unfinished. And, uh, but now he's gathering money from whoever wants to give it to build this library in Cité Soleil. Now, Haiti is largely illiterate, and if and Cité Soleil is also a shantytown. So illiteracy is even more powerful in the shantytowns than it is in the general population. Uh, so as Roby says, we'll see what they want with a, with a bibliothèque, with a library. But he feels it'll be a, a place for community. It will show respect for the written word and for the idea of education. But most important to me about it is the way they're doing uh, their fundraising and their accounting. So you go over there on a Sunday. I went on a Sunday morning. And there are like five people who are in their early 20s with their cell phones out keeping records of the money that's been given. And the money that's been given is both 
a million gourds from a bank and they have the check up on the wall magnified so everybody can see the bank gave a million gourds and then little like five gourds. It's, it's worth nothing basically from some guy across the street or I gave $40. Now, so what you do is you give the money, they take a picture of you and your money <laughs> and they put your name down and they put it up on their Facebook site. So there's a record of every single tiny and giant donation. There aren't that many giant ones. The The library is across the street from the police station, which I find interesting because the police have been a very varied influence in Cité Soleil, of course. And they also show, they have on their Facebook page, where the money goes. So you see the in and the out of the money. And for him, for Roby, this is the most important thing, is that it be utterly and completely transparent to anyone who can get on the Internet. You know, And that's almost anyone in Haiti because they still have Internet cafes. One other thing, the World Cup. Haiti is not in the World Cup. Do they follow the World Cup? So there were two things that stopped me from getting where I needed to go in Haiti this past week. One was all the demonstrations for the minimum wage to be raised, and the other was the World Cup because there are no TVs at home in Haiti or very few to speak of, so you go to a public TV. A public TV is in a barber shop or a tiny restaurant, which means that like five people can fit inside. But then there's a crowd massed around it. You can tell wherever there's a TV during World, World Cup season because there's a huge, like, bubble of crowd around all of these little places. And they also had public TVs installed in the um, central square of town. So people come down there by the hundreds. And the president came down. And what did he do? Instead of, like, speaking to the people and, and dealing with the problems of the people— like an old-fashioned dictator, he distributed presents, and those presents were TVs, <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> among other things. And who do the Haitians root for? Well, they root for any country of color over any country of whiteness, pretty much. Um, they root for the great players. They love the great players. And they don't really root for France. Amy Willens, her award-winning book about Haiti, Farewell Fred Voodoo, is out now in paperback. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, John. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. 
Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.